0: Uh, we're going to be in the book of Judges, if you're not there already. Judges is the seventh book in the Bible. And I'm going to set some context for us, but you need to know right from the beginning, if you've not been here for the last couple weeks, Judges is an R-rated story, an R-rated cautionary tale, warning us, speaking to us, trying to talk to us, that if you if you try to live in association with your own desires, yourself as supreme, as authority, it won't work. Go ahead and flip to the back of Judges. At the very last sentence, take a look at what it says. This is where the author is going. Hebrew literature would work like this quite often in the Old Testament. They kind of tell you right at the end what they've been trying to say all along. And there it is. So think about this, guys. If you're watching a two hour movie, this is the last sentence. And then the screen goes dark. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end. Kind of. Right? There's other movies to come out. The most important one in the book of Matthew. That's where this book is going. It's trying to help us see. It's a cautionary tale. It's an R-rated cautionary tale. We tried to think about children's ministry. How can we do family worship as we're walking through judges? So, it's a cautionary tale saying that if you try to make yourself a supreme... It will not work. What you need is a king and not just any kind of king. You need a king that is a good king that will fulfill righteousness for you and will lead you not to do what is right in your own eyes, but to lead you to do what is right in his eyes, in God's eyes. And that's the way of flourishing. That's the way of beauty and of truth. And so I'm going to set the context for this book one more time. This will be the last time I do this uh set the book one more context for judges because it's really important that we understand what's come before it and so here we go genesis chapter one god makes the world and he says in genesis 131 it's very good very good creation he sets adam and eve in that garden he says to them be fruitful multiply fill the earth fill the earth with people that will image the greatness of who i am all over the world god puts a tree in the middle of that garden he says do not eat of that one tree don't eat of that one tree you can eat of all the other trees but don't eat of that one tree And Satan comes in there and does not deny the words of God. He twists the words of God. And Adam and Eve believe that lie. And as a result, sin and death enter into the world. And just after that, chaos ensues to the point that we get, as we see in Genesis 7 and 8, we get the where God floods the world, sort of control, alt, delete. Everything start over again. And the second Noah and his family step off the boat, he tells them the same thing he said back in Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Fill the earth with people that image me, worship me, glorify me. But as soon as that happens after the flood, it goes bad again. Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. Insert Genesis 12. You get the story of a guy by the name of Abram. God then speaks to Abram, pulls him out. Abram is not yet Abraham, but he makes a promise to Abram. And he says to Abram that I will make of you, I will, one will come from you, an offspring will come from you that will actually bring to the nations the greatness of God from Abraham would become a people of the nations, and that one that was coming. We're going to see a little bit later, but nevertheless, God makes this promise to him. He's an old man at this point, and he marries a barren woman that can have no children named Sarah. That's right. A barren woman to be the father of the nations makes all the sense in the world, right? God wants to show you his greatness, his power, his might. And so Sarah has a child eventually. Praise the Lord. Miraculous, he has a child. And then that child named Isaac, Isaac marries. Guess who else? Another barren woman. Well, God, in His miraculous glory, He she gives birth to two, a set of twins, Jacob and Esau. The younger of whom, Jacob, the line goes through him, and he gives birth to twelve sons. Those twelve sons become the father of uh, those twelve sons become the father of the nation of Israel. They have many children. They they get hungry and and thirsty in the midst of a famine. They go down to Egypt, and those twelve sons that give birth to all those other kids, they get really big. So big in Egypt now they're in Egypt. So big in Egypt. Pharaoh says he's going to enslave them because he's scared of them because of how big they're getting. So they're enslaved. But God remembers his promise to Abraham. Abraham now, father of nations. And he, the people cry out. God hears those prayers and he delivers his people, Israel. How? By the blood of a male, unblemished lamb. Passes through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea onto the land of promise. And yet, as soon as they get on the other side of that land or on the other side of that river, God has vanquished that army of Egypt. They get on there and they begin to doubt God because they find out how big and how numerous the people are up in Canaan. And they doubt. And as a result, God punishes them and they can't go in. And so at the end of that, we got what we saw in Deuteronomy 7. Moses, the leader of God's people, speaks to them, to this new generation that's now going to go into the land. And he says to them three things. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. He says three things. He says, first off, you have to completely destroy the Canaanites. Now, again, if you're hearing this for the first time, this is tough to read. No doubt about it. We're not trying to mince over it. It should be hard to read about the destruction of a people. But we have to remember, friends, this is not genocide. Do not believe people that tell you that it is genocide. It is not Genocide. Genocide by nature, by definition, is nationalistic. God is not concerned about nationalistic kinds of things. He's concerned about the morality, the justice of his name being carried about amongst those people. The Canaanites were uh, worshipping a God that had them to destroy or sacrifice their children to him. They were practicing witchcraft and they were doing all kinds of sexually permissive stuff that would make you blush if you read it. Go back and read Leviticus 18 today. It'll make you shocked when you read what these people are doing sexually those are the people god is using his people israel to drive out to bring his justice to them and so the second thing that they are to do as they come in destroy completely destroy the israel or the canaanites and then they are to be a holy people they're supposed to love god by worshiping him and obeying him all of his commandments that's going to make them set apart well As that happens, they are also to not do the third. They are supposed. They are supposed to do the third thing that that other generation didn't do. That is to say, they're supposed to not be afraid. They're supposed to trust God and His grace as they go in. And then we saw last week Joshua. He now goes in because Moses dies. He can't go into the land. Uh, Joshua's the new leader. He carries them people in. And we saw, generally speaking, he does a pretty good job. There was some things. I sort of conveniently didn't show you last week that you'll hear more about today where they actually don't quite get it right. But most of the time, Joshua, good leader, he's bringing in, he's obeying the Lord. We get to the end of Joshua and Joshua says, if you really love God, then you're going to get rid of those false idols and you're going to follow God. And so he warns them and that then leads us to judges. Now, you should know, those of you that are less familiar with the story of the Bible, Jesus is a long way off at this point. So we're in the Old Testament Jesus has not yet come. Jesus would come to fulfill all righteousness. And because he does fulfill all righteousness, therefore there is no need to set up a nation state and have armies. That's why the church doesn't we don't have any spears and guns in the room here. right. We're not trying to conquer land. See, because Jesus fulfills all righteousness, the veil is torn. Now all of God's people, whether Jew or Greek, male or female, rich or poor, they all can go in. And so now they instead of building one nation state they go into the nations to have a people just like you're seeing just like you were seeing be birthed in this church. That leads us to judges. Now Joshua is dead and we pick up here in Joshua or actually in judges chapter 1. Now note guys as we read this the fear of the Israelites is spreading across the peoples there the people are afraid of this god because the, the israelites are big but they're not that big they're not as big as the other and yet they're winning all these battles so the people are afraid of them and so here we go judges chapter one before i say that main idea of the sermon main idea listen to this you get the whole sermon half-hearted obedience is full disobedience That's the lesson we're learning here half-hearted obedience is full disobedience half-hearted Obedience is full disobedience. That's what the author is trying to tell us. Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given, note those words, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled. But they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Oh, folks, you think that that's nothing in comparison to what we're going to read. Verse seven. And and Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done. So God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So, Judah is the first to go in after Joshua's death. He grabs his brother and that tribe, Simeon, to go with him. Judah's leadership, by the way, totally anticipated because of a promise made way back in Jacob's day, Genesis 49. Kings are going to come from Judah. And of course, we know the great king comes from Judah. His name is Jesus. So, nevertheless, Judah is going in. He's taking, uh, the lead after Joshua's death. Adonai, Bezek, who's, they defeat, they win the battle, just like God said they would. Uh, they take this guy, Adonai Bezek, captive, and they cut off his big toes and his thumbs. Now, if you think that's harsh, do you think that's sort of mean-spirited? Well, just listen to the assessment of Adonai Bezek himself. He recognizes that he's getting what he deserves from God, by the way, from God. He agreed, but he had done this himself to 70 kings. Verses 8 to 10, there you find that Judah and Simeon, they take Hebron. So they're advancing. Everything's going well. Verse 11, we get this quaint little love story of Aksa and Othniel. Aksa means anklet. All right. Othniel means line of God. So you got a beautiful little love story. of I'm going to keep calling her anklet and line of God. All right. This little story in verses 11 to 15 shows you what ought to be happening. This is not this is not the cautionary tale. This is saying, like, this is what you ought to be doing. Verse 11, from there, they went against the inhabitants of Dabir, the name of Debir was for me, Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb, remember, Caleb's one of the other good guys, right? He came in with Joshua. Uh, he said, he who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksah, anklet, my daughter for a wife. And Othniel apparently thought she was beautiful. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksah, his daughter for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of, ne- of the Negeb. give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So again, this is meant to us understand as they're coming into the land. This is what's supposed to be happening. This should be a good picture. Othniel, lion of God, he's strong. He's courageous. He takes a city. He's marrying one of God's people. Caleb is—that's uh, his dad. That's Aksaw's dad. Is one of the good guys, as I mentioned. His little girl Anklet Aunt wants a little place for her little abode there to have some water, a little well to get some water. Smart gal, right? They put it there. That's what happens. So everything's going well generally, until we hit a glitch in verse 19. Look at verse 19. They kind of keep going. They're conquering territories. We get to verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. What does that mean? Could not drive out the inheritance. Well, it can't mean, right, that the inhabitants of the, the inhabitants there, the guys with the iron chariots are like, well, they're too strong for God. God, you know, he's not that strong. He's strong. You know, he can make the world, but he can't defeat Iron chariots. Like, it can't mean that, right? So if you were to go back to Joshua 17, you would you'd read another account where there was a similar instance where another tribe is running up to some people that had Iron Chariots. And there in Joshua 17, Joshua says to them, don't fear, don't be afraid. Take the land, go. And so here, friends, we are meant to see that Judah gets it wrong. He is more, Judah and those tribes, are more aware of the strength of iron chariots than they are aware of the strength of God. And as a result, they do not drive them out. And this sets us right now down on the downward spiral. Take a look at what comes immediately following. Verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, when we say that language to this day, like we understand, right, that a long time has passed. So if I were to say to you, you know, uh, my grandfather uh, fought in the war and then he settled down in Nashville, Tennessee, and they still live there to this day, right? We would understand a lot of time has passed. So they don't quite, they don't get it right. First, Benjamin then we get the story of more compromise in a couple other tribes. Look at verse 22. Take a look at there. Verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz and the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And what happened? And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. And so right there, verses 22 to 26, you get in miniature what's going to happen in the whole land. They compromise with this one guy and his family to get some secrets, as if God's presence is not enough. They've already won every battle, but they feel like they feel the need to get more secrets, more sort of, you know, strategy to get in there. And instead of trusting God and taking that, they make a compromise and make an agreement with this guy. And that guy left, false worshiper, one of these kind of Canaanite people, and he goes and builds another town. Compromises continue. I'm going to go fast now. Take a look at verse 27. Each of these you're about to hear, these are different tribes of Judah manasseh verse 27 manasseh did not drive out the canaanites of Bethshem. verse 29 and ephraim did not drive out the canaanites who lived in gezer verse 30 zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of kitron verse 31 asher did not drive out the inhabitants of akko verse 33 naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of bethshemesh and it gets even worse in verse 34 the amorites beat the, Dan- the danites So I want you to notice, then, what they do with those people. So they sort of take over these promises, or these lands, these people. They take them over. They win the battle, but they don't win the war. And notice what they do with the remnant. Remember what they're supposed to do. We'll come back to that. They've defeated them, but they've not destroyed them. Look what they do with the remaining folks. Take a look at verse 28, the second half down there. They put the Canaanites to forced labor. They do the same thing. The other tribe does the same thing in verse 30. Verse 33, the inhabitants of Beth-Anath became subject to forced labor. Verse 35, speaking of the Amorites, they become subject to forced labor. So they kind of win the battle. There's some remnant folks left over and instead of completely destroying them as they were supposed to, instead, they cut a deal with them. That should help you to be reminded of Deuteronomy 7 too. Remember what Moses told them before they went in? Deuteronomy 7, two, And when the Lord your God, this is before they even get into the land, and when the Lord your God gives, you over, uh, gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And yet that's exactly what they do. So what happens? We'll look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal, sort of cutting room store, sermon prep stuff. But that's where they last time they made a covenant with God. That's why angels aren't sort of randomly showing up in cities. They want you to see they got it right. And they repented in Gilgal. Now they're going to Bokim, Anyway, back into the sermon. All right. And he said, I, this is the angel of the Lord. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? And so now I will. So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you as soon As the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now it's difficult to describe this angel of the Lord comes in numerous places throughout the Old Testament. It's difficult to describe exactly who he is and what he is. But nevertheless, I want you to notice he speaks in the first person. Did you catch that? In other words, he speaks as though he was God. Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord and understands that he saw God. So notice he says, I. See those first person? I. But did you notice the first thing that the angel of the Lord said when he came to confront them? What's the first thing he said? You see it? The first thing he does is remind them of his mercy. First thing he does is remind them of his love. The first words out of his mouth was, I've been so good to you. See, you He rehearses their deliverance from Egypt. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that, listen, I brought you salvation from your fathers, just like I said I would, and I told you to make no covenant with these people. And then verse 3 is heart-wrenching and sadly familiar words. What is this you have done? It's sadly familiar because it's the exact same question that God asked Adam and Eve in the garden. What have you done? I've been nothing but good to you. I've been faithful to you and your fathers. I've asked you to do this and you failed. We get to verse three here in a second, but look at the response that they of the Israelites. They weep and they make a sacrifice to God. In other words, guys, they knew. The Israelites knew. They knew that what they'd done was wrong. They didn't try and be defensive. They didn't try and explain themselves. They just wept. In the face of the confrontation of their disobedience to the God that had been nothing but good to them, they wept. See, God was angry and He had a right to be and they knew it. Guys, of all the difficult things to read in this book, and there's a lot, to me, this is one of the most difficult things to read. You want to know why? Because it sounds a lot like a very godly, servant hearted, kind husband catching his wife committing adultery. Where the wife stands up and she knows what she's done is wrong. And the husband is standing there going, What have you done? I've been so good to you. I asked you to not do this. And you're doing, What what are you doing? And he's somewhere in between deep anger and deep hurt. And she knows what she's done is wrong. She went her own way and kind of did things the way she wanted to do things. And the husband stands there hurt and angry. That's the picture we're given here, just as it was in the garden where God had given them every single tree but one. He gave them every good thing. He gave them all these good things. God was good to Israel. He he gave them good leaders. He gave them his word. He gave them a land. He gave them encouragement. He gave them his presence. He gave them all of these things. And their response to his love was to kind of obey. Sort of. They did enough to win the battle, but not enough to win the war. And guys, I want you to catch this. This is important. It's not just that they disobeyed that God was so angry. It's not the only reason why. God loved these people. And he knew that what would happen as a result of what they'd done. Their sort of half-hearted obedience. He knew what would happen. He tells them, verse 4, because you did not fully obey me, actually verse 3, because these guys didn't obey me, now they're going to be a problem for you. And look what happens as a result. We're going to look at this next week, verses 10 to 12. What happens? Since they sort of kind of obeyed and let these people sort of keep going. These false worshipers, these people... Look what happens. Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them. Okay, So this is the, now the third generation after they've left. Who did not know the Lord. Or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. That is, they served the gods of the Canaanites. And they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went after other gods. In other words, guys, the the prior generation's half-hearted discipleship led to a full-hearted abandon of the Lord in the next generation. To the point of their not even knowing about the salvation from Egypt. And instead, they serve another God. See, God knew where all of this was heaven. So they had hardly even gotten into the land before the whole thing unraveled. But I want you to notice this, guys. Listen, I want you to notice it didn't become unraveled because of some grand display of disobedience. Not like the golden calf incident. It was just just some small compromise. They sort of said, you know, come on, Lord. They got iron chariots, Lord. I mean, look at those things. They're really strong. Maybe they said, to they said, yeah, well, we'll sort of deal with them later, right? Instead of destroying them, let's just sort of get them to work for us. We won't have to kill them. And hey, guess what? Well, this is a great deal. We'll get them to work for us. Good deal. And, you know, we're kind of doing them a favor by not killing them. So this all kind of works out. We have no idea how long this went on, this half-hearted disobedience went on before the angel of the Lord shows up. Apparently, guys, it's long enough for nine tribes to go into the land uh, and make covenants with these other people. And it's also long enough for it to occur at the back end of this generation that's coming in. In other words, guys, catch this. The Lord's rebuke did not come quickly. I'm sure they had plenty of days where they sat back and drank some lemonade as they watched the Canaanites in their fields. It would be great to have that corn next year. Good job out there! Give me another lemonade. You know, They're thinking they're winning, right? Everything looks good. They'd achieved a kind of pragmatic success, but spiritual failure. And they didn't have eyes to see it. And because they didn't, they couldn't even see what was going to come, even though the Lord warned them time and again. And what came was a free fall from grace in one generation to another generation that is full of guilt. Their half-hearted discipleship was fully disobedient and eventually led to forgetfulness and complete chaos among God's people. And it started with just a little bit of compromise. Maybe some of you are aware of these uh, stories you hear now. It's sort of a popularly, popularly believed trope that Christian young people that grew up in Christian families are leaving the faith. Have you all heard about this? So Christian families, all these young people are now leaving these Christian families. That's sort of widely known, but did you know that as sociologists and historians, they as they try to study actually what's happening with all these uh, young people leaving their Christian families, leaving the faith of their parents, what they're actually finding is, is that these young people are walking away from parents who were only kind of kind of devoted. In other words, what they're finding is these young people that are leaving, they're walking away from the faith of their parents, this Christian faith of their parents, they're walking away from nominal Christianity. It wasn't as though these parents were discipling their uh, children to follow Jesus. Uh, These kids are not just leaving all that kind of stuff wholesale. What's happening is these kids are walking away from squishy, half-hearted Christianity of their parents. And for that, I'm okay with that. I want no part of that. So today's so-called nuns, I'm sure you all have heard about them, are yesterday's so-called nominal or cultural Christians. Most every study will show you that those who take their faith seriously, churches that are taking the Word seriously, pointing people to Jesus, they're actually growing. They're growing. It's the dead churches and the nominal Christians that are dying. And I say good riddance. What we're seeing is a collapse of half-hearted Christianity, and this should make sense to us, right? Half-hearted Christianity would sort of not do well. Think about it. How do you think a half-hearted marriage would go? Would go well? You think? Probably not. How do you think your boss would think of your work if you were sort of giving a half-hearted effort at your job? How would that go? Students in the room. How, what kind of grade do you think you would get if you kind of wrote a half-hearted essay? Think you'd get a good grade? Probably not. Like to buy a painting from a guy that half-heartedly painted a painting? Probably not, right? How would you like me if I was sort of a half-hearted friend to you? Probably wouldn't like being around you that much. What would you think if I came up here week after week and sort of half-heartedly preached sermons? Probably wouldn't come back. I wouldn't blame you. We understand this, guys. If, if we don't get If we understand this half-hearted stuff doesn't work, why would we expect God to accept half-hearted Christianity. God was angry for two reasons. He was angry, yes, because of their disobedience, but He was also angry because their disobedience would lead to the worship of a false God. They weren't careful because ultimately, they just weren't that into God. They liked what God could do for them, what God could give them, as long as He sort of gave them what they want they would sort of kind of do what he wants them to do. And the second it got easy, they just sort of hit coast. And this all led to the consequences that we read about there in verse three. This whole idea when he says, I will not drive them out before you. Now, some of you read that and you're asking a good question, right? A good question. You're saying, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought God kept his promises. That looks like he's not. God changed his mind. What's going on there, Nathan? It's a good question. Reality is, friends, He's not going back on His promises. That is not what's happening. The reality is there's a new reality that has been introduced into the relationship. Namely, this generation's uh, disobedience. And so God has to deal with it. He can't just let it go. In the same way that He had to destroy the Canaanites, He's got to punish the guilt of the Israelites. But at the same time, He would still be faithful to the covenant that He made to them. And so you should be asking the question, How is God going to do that? How is he going to punish the Israelites and yet at the same time be faithful to them? That's sort of like saying, a husband saying, I'm going to divorce you, but I'm still going to be faithful to you as my wife. There's a sort of tension in that that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Well, guys, the tension that is eventually resolved here is resolved in the Redeemer, Christ the Lord. Paul tells us, I am not doing hermeneutical gymnastics, by the way. You go back and check me on this. Galatians chapter 3. Read it this afternoon. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, that Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. He said it. Paul goes this whole thing. Notice the text does not say offsprings, but offspring. He does that whole thing. Offspring, meaning Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel. In Jesus, friends, he did not half-heartedly obey. He fully obeyed Jesus fully obeyed. He was tempted in every way. The Bible tells us as we were yet was without what sin. Like Israel, even Jesus was led into the wilderness, but unlike Israel, he came out faithful. Jesus did. And so therefore God made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we who believe might become the righteousness of God, not in ourselves, in him, in Jesus, or to make it more simple, as Paul writes in, in the same letter that I just quoted there, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says there, all the promises of God. So that's all this stuff we're reading through here in the Old Testament. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Yes in Christ. Christ solves the tension of God's love to sinful Israel and His promises to never leave them or forsake them. Christ pays the penalty of the Israelites or any other sinner in his sacrifice on the cross and in the resurrection for all those who believe. And Jesus' obedience then gets credited to those that sacrifice, those that trust in his sacrifice and in his resurrection. They get credited with full obedience, even though at best we might be half-heartedly obedient. Jesus' record gets transferred to us, and our record gets transferred to him on the cross. And those that repent and believe and get that, that's what they get. This is the great good news of the gospel. Christ resolves that tension. God is faithful. He is, Romans 3 talks about the fast that he is both the just and the justifier. So he's just in that he maintains his holiness and he's a justifier in that he can still bring sinners in. And so the testimony, friends, of historic Israel reveals the need for a holy sacrifice that we cannot obey. The whole, well, one of the main points of the Old Testament when you read through here is to help you see that you cannot obey enough. These guys are given every blessing that anybody could ever be given in order to try to be obeyed good enough in order to be made righteous. And they fail time and time and time again. And so why does God put that in the Bible? So that when we open up the book of Matthew in the New Testament, we see the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's the one you need. It's pointing us to Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. And that's what's happening in Judges. It's pointing us to our need for someone outside of ourselves to give us their righteousness. And because of Jesus' righteousness, now again, Jew or Greek, male or female, doesn't matter who, now righteousness is no longer bound up in one particular group. It's for all people among all nations, as is evidenced by a Spanish speaking church plan. And so let me speak to you, friend, that are maybe experiencing guilt at this moment. I recognize, we were talking about this in sermon prep. How do I preach this? right? Because when I say half-hearted uh, disobedience is full disobedience, there's people in this room that are going to be crushed by that. How do I do that? But then there's a whole bunch of other folks in this room like, you need a nice swift, right? Ha, ha How do you preach that? Well, friend, let me speak to you. If you are experiencing a heavy amount of guilt if you hear that world word that question from god to you what have you done and you're trusting in christ listen cast off your guilty chains throw yourself on christ he is your obedience god loves you and is for you his grace his love his mercy they're all yours and he loves you zephaniah 3 says he sings over you he for you he loves you not happy about your disobedience, but he still loves you. I love my son. My son makes a ton of mistakes, and it never stops. I still love that little boy. That's how God is towards you in Christ. Yes, your guilt is real. Yes, your half-hearted obedience is not okay. But if you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation, listen. Your forgiveness is real and total. Therefore, the debt is paid, and you're now like anklet in the line of God. You can settle into the land and drink some water. (laughs) Paul says it well. You're no longer under the law. You're now under grace. Jesus' full-hearted obedience replaces your half-hearted or empty obedience by grace through faith. And if you're not a Christian and you're wondering, what must I do to become a Christian? You need to start by understanding you can do nothing. Christ has done it all. Trust Him to be born again. So don't walk out of here beat up. But let me speak to the other group of folks, which is probably most of us. Far too many of us are like these Israelites. We are living in the days of half-hearted devotion. We've done enough to drive out the evil or wickedness or sin in our lives. We're not as bad as other people. You know, maybe we're even members of a church that takes membership really seriously. Like, I'm really doing good. But you put your sin to forced labor in your life. You sort of get it to work for you. You make a covenant with sin in that you're not completely destroying it. You're sort of fine for it to kind of be sitting out there. And maybe like the Israelites, you don't consciously think of it that way, if you think of it all. But if the angel of the Lord were to visit our own personal lives, he could easily spot a number of compromises in our faith, couldn't he? And so, Christian, my question to you is, where are those compromises? Where are they at? Where are the places that you're sort of half-heartedly obeying, feeling good like those Canaanites sitting back drinking some lemonade as you watch the Canaanites work for you? Where's that happening? There's some easy places to spot, super easy. Sexual immorality, sinful anger, greed. So we make ourselves feel better thinking that we follow Jesus more than most people do. So surely God kind of looks over those things. No big deal. You know, I need to get a handle on those things. But it's not that big of a deal. We don't actually destroy that sin. We're not trying to fight that sin by God's grace. We just try to manage it. But those are the easy things to spot. What about those Less easy ones to spot. What about those little lies that we tell others? You know, somebody asked you maybe on your resume or CV, whatever you all call that thing. You know, you put things on there. People ask things about you. And you kind of tell them half-truths. Because you want to make yourself kind of look good. You don't want to look bad. Or what about those times where we drink too much? We use vulgar language. We complain or we slander someone else. If we even notice these things at all, we think they're, they're not that big of a deal. These things are like that forced labor of the Canaanites. It might not be the best, but they make life a little easier for us. Instead of destroying them, we feel good about what we have done and we compromise and then wind up using these things, these sinful sort of things that maybe aren't that as known. We use them for ourselves. Make life a little easier. But maybe the most dangerous compromise of all Theological compromise. Paul writes to his young disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. This is a verse, by the way, you should be writing right next down, right down to virtually every passage here in Judges. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, healthy teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So this has to be one of the most dangerous and yet most common problems in the church today. So few confessing Christians are aware that they are surrounding themselves with teachers that tell them everything that they want to hear and not the things that they need to hear. And you see what this leads to. Paul says it leads them to wandering off into myths away from truth, into myths, into things that are not true. In the same way that Israel wandered off and eventually began worshiping Baal. Small compromises eventually wander off into untruths. Brothers and sisters, we live in a time and a place uh, where we uh, have this issue that I like to call Baskin-Robbins Christianity. 31 different flavors. Churches, doctrine, and things of the like. Pick your flavor, whatever you want. There is a church or ministry that can sort of surround and come around just about anything that you would want or anything that you would like. So want to want to make your, you know, sort of like staying at home, sleeping in on Sundays, stay in your PJs, well, you can go to www.churchathome.com, and that can be your church. Or you want a preacher that's sort of funny, tells a lot of stories, gives you some practical advice for life, well, go to that church over there. Want a church that will sing old hymns, preach hour-long sermons through books like Judges, right? You know, have covenants, plant Spanish-speaking churches. Maybe their name's Restoration Church. We'll go to that church. Want to go? Want to go to a church where there's sort of a lot of young people? Well, that's the church over there. Want to go to a church where there's a lot of old people? We'll go to that one over there. Want to go to a church that is kind of charismatic, sings Chris Tomlin songs, is larger than 200 people? It doesn't ask you to do too much. certainly doesn't ask you to serve in children's ministry. And, you know, it gets you out to watch the NFL games in the afternoon. Well, that's that church over there. Guys, this stuff is dangerous. It's not necessarily wrong. I'm not saying that. It's just dangerous. It's dangerous because instead of letting God order your worship, it allows you to set the agenda for worship. You get to kind of do church in the way that is right in your own eyes. Possibly making compromises. Possibly just making it easier. And while again, this is not necessarily wrong, it is dangerous because it could lead you to a place where you're never being loved enough to be told something that you need to hear. Guys, it grieves me to know there are hundreds of people sitting in churches as we speak that are being encouraged to walk in half-hearted Christianity. As we speak right now, they're sitting under sermons. There are places that are allowing disobedience to serve as a labor force for sin in their lives. That's happening. And meanwhile, the Lord says, what have you done? What have you done? And so are we putting people in our lives that will lovingly, humbly tell us, don't walk over there. Don't go over there. Are we doing that? Are we we putting people around us saying, listen, you can't walk that path. You keep walking that path. You're going to end up in a place you don't want to be. Don't compromise on this one thing. I know it doesn't seem like a big deal, but you can't go there. No. Do we have people like that in our lives that love us enough to speak to us like that? Because friends, if we don't, if we don't, then two years will turn into ten years. Ten years will turn into 20. will turn into 30 years. And we will find ourselves cold to the gospel. The things of God rest lightly upon our lips. We wind up using Sunday morning to catch up on social media. Some good brunches, we wind up using it for that. And then maybe, Lord willing, we have a family. And maybe we tell those children about Jesus here and there. We go to church every once in a while. But in reality, our children see our jobs and our vacations as the thing that interests us the most. And 30 years go by, and we wonder why that next generation why those kids, why they don't love Jesus. Or worse, what happened to us? Why don't we love Jesus? When we were 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, to love Jesus more. What happened? And when we trace it back, we find it was just not being careful with a few important things like surrounding ourselves with people that love us enough to speak God's Word to us, to hold up Christ as King, knowing that He's good for us and His commands are good for us and His ways are good for us. We got to where when we trace it back, we find that maybe we treated the community of saints as sort of that thing that we did when we were in town. We don't even commit to a church. We just sort of hop around. We sat under preaching that tickled our ears and didn't confront our personal likes and dislikes with the good word of our King. And as a result, when we're 60, we're not who we thought we were at 20. Friends, do what is necessary to attack half-hearted discipleship. Don't be like these Israelites that did a lot of what the Lord called them to and compromise by creating a workforce for the rest. No, love God and love neighbor by saying, I'm all in. I'm all in. I understand this is going to be hard, but I'm all in. Under the sovereignty of God, your soul depends upon it. The next generation of Christ's followers depends upon you saying that. Going back to the Lord's instruction to Joshua last week, we have to be careful to do according to all that is written in God's word. We have to rehearse. Don't miss this part of it, guys. We have to rehearse the gospel. Regularly, daily. Because that's what the Israelites didn't do. They forgot. The parents didn't start teaching the kids. We got to do this. Why, mommy, daddy? Because God delivered us from Egypt. He's good. That's why we're going to do it. We've got to do that for us. Why do I do this instead of that? Because God sent His only Son. And He loves us. And so I don't like this step right here any more than you do, son or daughter. But we're going to take it. Because Jesus is good and He's a better King than me or you. So let's walk. We have to attack the Canaanites of our own day. Every day. Not with swords and with spears, but by remembering the Gospel. We have to put on our spiritual warfare, surround ourselves with other soldiers of Christ, have good leaders around us, and go to war. For the sake of our own souls, for the sake of Jesus' church, for the sake of those that do not yet know the Gospel, and most of all, for the sake of the glory of Christ. So I'm going to end our time in this passage by asking you one last question. Here it is. What would our lives look like if we were more suspicious of ourselves, more suspicious of society, and more confident in Christ? What would our lives look like? If we were more suspicious of ourselves and our own take on things, more suspicious of, the, sort of what we're being told out there, whatever that means, and we're more confident in Christ, what would our lives look like? Now listen to me. I'm not saying... Be a bunch of cynics. That's not good. No interest in that. I'm just saying be more suspicious and more confident in Christ. What would it look like? Could the Spirit use our confidence in Christ and our suspicious of self and society to build a better story for our own lives, for our children's lives, and for this community's lives? And guys, the reality is, I've been watching you guys do this good work. And I thank God for you. So many of you are all in. You're not interested in half-hearted obedience. That's why you're here. You know, like, you know, I'd rather Nathan not preach 45 minutes, but at least he's going to give me the truth, so I'll go there, right? That's what you do. Praise God, that's good. You're surrounding yourself with people that maybe disagree with you. We've got to agree, though, on those most important things. But, guys, imagine if we did this. All in, trusting Christ, holding fast to him, remembering and rehearsing the gospel. Remember, if it, if it has happened well here so far, and it has, if it's happened well in a few pockets, what would happen if all 140 members said, I'm in, all in, not half in, all in? What would happen? And what might it do for you, the church that will be Iglesia, Sublima, Iglesia Biblica Sublima Gracia? Dang it. Almost at it. But in serious, what would happen to you? If all of you moved into Columbia Heights and said, we're all in. We're not going to go about this church thing halfway. We're going to be all in for the glory of Christ, for the good of this community, and the good of the people that don't yet know Jesus. What would happen to you if you started your church that way and you spread the good news of Christ? What would happen to families and communities? What might come? Well, guys, let's commit ourselves to not only... Asking that question, but answering it and living it every day. Doing what is necessary to hold fast to Christ, living fully devoted to Him, remembering the gospel, trusting in Jesus, being strong and courageous, not leaning on ourselves, but leaning on Jesus, remembering that God brought us up out of our own slavery for the sake of His glory and leading us. He is, Jesus is leading us into the land of Providence. He's with us. Restoration Church, He is with us. May we take the land in front of us. And not do it half-heartedly, but fully devoted to God for His glory. Let's ask Him for help. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. If we were left to ourselves to try and obey and try to get it right, we never would. Because we're all, everybody, myself, God included, so often go about things half-heartedly. And so our hope is not in us. Our hope is in the one that was fully devoted. He is our identity. He is our hope. He is our strength and our great reward. He is with us. and So may we go. Not making our sin work for us as the Israelites did, but pressing in, completely obeying you because we are convinced that you are completely good. Thank you, God, for the ways this is happening. And God, may you use us for the sake of your glory all the more. Amen.